Christopher, are you ready to record? Just a minute. Was someone at the door? Yeah, two college students from England. Way out here? What do they want? Directions to Blue Lick State Park. They're backpacking across the state. Did you tell them which way to go? Yes, and I also warned them to stick to the roads and stay out of the fields. Why, coyotes? No. Bears? No. Werewolves? No. Rednecks. There's a creepy old house out in the hills, a domicile of weirdness, horror, and thrills. Episode 107 of Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. I'm Cindy. And I'm Chris, and welcome once again to the house of Franklin Stein. This is part three of our 10th annual season, and we're now in October, so it's a perfect time to talk about classic monsters and a more modern interpretation of them, even if this film is now 42 years old. An American Werewolf in London was released August 21st, 1981, written and directed by John Landis. In the cast, we had David Naughton as David Kessler. Griffin Dunn as Jack Goodman, Jenny Ogeter as Nurse Alex Price, John Woodbine as Dr. J.S. Hirsch, Don McKillop as Inspector Villers, Paul Kimber as Sergeant McManus, Lila Kay as the barmaid, Brian Glover as the chess player, David Schofield as the dart player, Patty Ryan as the first werewolf, Anne-Marie Pierce as Nurse Susan Gallagher, and Frank Oz as Mr. Collins. La 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 Isn't this fine, lovely stroll on the moors? Did you hear that? I heard that. What is it? You think it's a dog? Nice doggy. Good boy. What happened to them? Well, the police report said they were attacked by an escaped lunatic. A wolf. My friend Jack was just here. Ah! Told me that I will become a monster in two days. Your dead friend, Jack. Yes. You gotta believe me, David. Believe what? You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Tomorrow night's the full moon. You're gonna change. You'll become. I know. I know. A monster. Naked American man stole my balloon. What? What did I do last night? You don't remember? The last remaining werewolf must be destroyed. It's you, David. Run! Good Lord. 
college students David Kessler and Jack Goodman are backpacking across England when they come across the village of East Proctor and a pub named The Slaughtered Lamb. The locals aren't too friendly, especially when David and Jack ask about the pentagram drawn on the wall with candles all around it. They run the boys off, only telling them to stick to the roads and stay off the moors. Caught up in conversation, the boys ignore this warning and begin hearing a howling, growling animal following them. A huge canine creature attacks Jack, and David initially runs away, finally turning around only to find his friend eviscerated and dead. The beast then attacks David, biting and scratching him until the pub locals arrive and shoot the creature. David looks over as he's passing out to see the body of a dying man next to him. He awakens in London's St. Martin's Hospital under the care of Dr. Hirsch and Nurse Alex Price. David learns of Jack's death and of the police's official report that they were attacked by a very human maniac. David is convinced they were victims of a large animal, but no one believes him. While he convalesces in the hospital, he begins having disturbing dreams. First of him running naked through the woods, feeding on deer, then of changing into a monster in front of Alex, and finally of his family being slaughtered by more monstrous-than-usual Nazis. Even more disturbing, David is visited by Jack, now a mangled and deteriorating corpse. Jack tells David that they were attacked by a werewolf, and as one of his victims, Jack is cursed to walk the earth as a member of the undead. The only thing that can free him is the end of the werewolf's bloodline, and that is David. Having been bitten by a werewolf, David is destined to become one and kill. Jack urges his friend to commit suicide, but David believes he is dreaming again. He tells Alex about Jack, and she convinces him he was right about dreaming. The two become very close, and when David is released from the hospital, she takes him home with her. After the two make love, Jack visits David again in an even more extreme state of decomposition. Again, he tells David of the werewolf curse and how on the following night, the first of the full moon, he will change. Meanwhile, Dr. Hirsch decides to check on what David has told him about what happened in East Proctor. He finds the villagers initially obstinate, but one of the locals finally cracks, telling him enough to make him think that the town is at least the victim of mass hysteria. The following evening, while Alex is at work, an impatient David waits to see what will happen when the moon rises. The change comes on quickly as David screams in agony, his bones breaking and growing, his limbs, teeth, and claws elongating. The creature that was David goes on a killing spree, viciously murdering six people throughout the night. The next morning, David wakes up in the wolf cage of the London Zoo. When he arrives at Alex's flat, both she and Dr. Hirsch have been frantically looking for him. While taking a cab to his office, they learn of the murders and David knows who's to blame. He runs from Alex and attempts to slit his wrist, but is unable. Again, he sees Jack and follows him into a porno theater in Piccadilly Circus, where he meets the undead spirits of all the people he killed the night before. They all suggest he end his existence and the werewolf bloodline, setting them free. When night falls, David transforms again, killing the theater patrons and throngs of people outside, either through his own teeth and claws or by the mayhem that he causes. The police corner the beast in a dead-end alley, and Alex and Hirsch arrive. Alex runs past the armed police and confronts the creature. She professes her love for David, who briefly seems to acknowledge their connection, before lunging at her. The police open fire, killing the wolf. When Hirsch walks up, he finds Alex crying uncontrollably in the dead human body of David Kessler. And then cue a very upbeat version of Blue Moon. Uh, <laughs> when this movie came out, I was six years old, and the ad for this thing scared the bejesus out of me. I had already been traumatized a few years before by trying to watch Abner Costello meet Frankenstein, as we've covered here many times before, and seeing Lon Chaney Jr. change into the Wolfman. I was traumatized for years and deathly afraid of werewolves. 
when the commercials for this movie came on, I'd run out of the room sometimes screaming. Oh, <laughs> poor little boy. Uh, it was made all the more confusing by the participation of David Doughton, who was the spokesperson for Dr. Pepper, which was my soda of choice. Still is. Also the soda of choice for Dick Grayson's Robin mm-hmm. in the Untold Legend of the Batman miniseries. I'm just saying. It's, it's verified by Len Wein and Jim Apparel. I was a pepper, just like his ad campaign had sold me on. Mm-hmm. The nude scenes in this film that Naughton participated in cost him that gig, however. So. Yeah. <laughs> Everything out in the wind, oh my. <laughs> that's a pepper, that's a pepper, he's a pepper. Uh, writer and director John Landis conceived of the basic story of this film while working as an assistant on the movie Kelly's Heroes in 1968. While filming in the former Yugoslavia, Landis witnessed what he described as a gypsy funeral. The deceased was buried feet first and covered in garlic cloves to keep him from rising from the grave. It got him thinking, what if he did? Mm. Flash forward to 1973, and while directing his first film, Schlock, Landis discussed a project which had morphed into the nearly fully formed in American Werewolf in London script with his special effect artist, Rick Baker. He told Baker he wanted to show how agonizing a transformation would be and not use lapse dissolves like the classic Universal films. Landis and Baker essentially made a pact with Landis fully intending to eventually make the film and Baker agreeing to come up with a way to convincingly show a werewolf transformation in camera. After directing first the Kentucky Fried movie and then with the breakout comedy hit National Lampoon's Animal House, Landis was a hot director in Hollywood. Coming off the heat of the Blues Brothers, Landis finally had the clout and the studio backing to make the werewolf movie he wanted, and he called up Baker. Unfortunately, Baker had already signed on to another werewolf film, Joe Dante's The Howling. Dante was another young, hot director with an irreverent attitude and love of classic horror. Landis was reportedly very upset with Baker, but Baker assumed the film would never happen, so he used his initial ideas on a werewolf project that was going into production. Yeah, so after some initial design work, Baker ultimately left The Howling to work with Landis. Baker's assistant, Rob Botton, took over the project. There are some who prefer the effects work in The Howling, but most would agree an American Werewolf in London is the superior of the two films, both in story and effects. And I haven't seen The Howling in a very long time, no. so I can't really say for certain I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't know if I've ever seen it. Yeah, and it's not streaming anywhere for free, so I'm cheap, and I won't, you know, so yeah. watch it. Um, so we start out this movie with the first version of Blue Moon we'll hear in the film, this time by Bobby Vinton. Uh, this movie has a great soundtrack of just about every moon song you can think of, but surprisingly not Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London, <laughs> which, you know, David Naughton and uh, Griffin Dunn actually mentioned that in the commentary track. Uh, the beautiful scenic shots and opening action are actually Wales, not Northern England, and we're introduced to our two male leads sitting in a truck bed full of sheep. Landis said this is intentional as both of these boys are being led to slaughter. Okay. okay. <laughs> Think about it. Civilism. Yes. Uh, and actually, the truck driver tells him first to stay off the moors. Yeah. So that's, that's another person that tells him that. And he's a lot more friendly than the slaughtered lamb folks. David Naughton, as we mentioned, played David Kessler, which is convenient. Prior to this, he had made a splash by being the spokesman for Dr. Pepper. Uh, singing and dancing through a series of very popular Be A Pepper commercials, as I mentioned. He also sang the theme song to his short-lived sitcom, Making It. Uh, The series only lasted nine episodes, but the song was a hit. Hmm. (laughs) So, Remember there was that one 
there was that one show in the 90s that was like about a fake rock band and the show like tanked but the song went over big was it the heights or something yeah remember that yeah that's just kind of kind of the same thing i'm always surprised that he didn't become a bigger star after this you know but he has continued to work doing a lot of guest appearances on just about every popular show you can conceive of and starring in several short-lived series such as My Sister Sam, which had a decent 44-episode run. That was with Pam Dauber oh, okay. after Mork and Mindy. Uh, for listeners of our JLU cast series, he provided the voice of The Streak, the Flash analog from the Justice Guild of America, in the classic Justice League episodes Legends, Parts 1 and 2. Uh, despite playing second banana here, Griffin Dunn has probably had the more successful career appearing in many films and having lengthy guest stints on several popular shows, as well as becoming a well-known producer and director. In addition to being a regular cast member on the recently wrapped This Is Us, he produced and starred in the film After Hours, directed films like Practical Magic, and TV series like The Good Wife, which he also guest starred on. He's appeared in Oscar-winning pictures like Dallas Buyers Club, but I'll always remember him for this film and as Michael Keaton's overly horny brother in Johnny Dangerously. <laughs> The ESS yes. film. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta get laid, Johnny. Uh, Dunn's casting proved to be a problem with British equity, who felt there were already American actors living and working in England who could play Jack. The office gave permits for Landis, Baker, and Naughton, but balked at Dunn's. Landis threatened to move to France and retitled the film An American Werewolf in Paris, so the office finally conceded. And more on that title at the end of this discussion. Okay. So, in the commentary track they recorded together, Notton and Dunn stated that they ad-libbed a lot of their dialogue during this walk that we see at the beginning since they didn't exactly know when Landis was going to yell cut. And this completely works because you totally buy these two are old oh, friends. Yeah. I mean, they totally have that chemistry of old buddies. Yeah. And even going back to, like, apparently the eighth grade at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Dunn also mentioned that this... That that's his real snot. You see on camera when he wipes his nose, it wasn't in the script. (laughs) Yeah, no special effects there. Uh, Both actors said they basically didn't really audition for the roles in a traditional sense. They interviewed with Landis and later found out they had the job. And Landis repeatedly asked Dunn if he was claustrophobic. Dunn told him no, but wondered what that was all about. He soon found out when he had to come in for body cast, being covered in plaster with only straws to breathe through. And then when Baker met Naughton, he simply said, I feel sorry for you. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they discuss Debbie Klein, whom Jack is infatuated with, but David thinks she's a mediocre person with a good body. And you also learn this backpacking trip was David's idea. Well, and he says, if anything happens, it's your fault. Exactly. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> We get to hear Elmer Bernstein's beautiful and melodic score, which I think helps ground the film. It's very sad and melancholy, but also seems genuinely sweet, which I think matches David's character and makes everything that much more tragic. And I think there's only about seven minutes of score, however. Mm, so there's, okay. there's not an official like score of the soundtrack, mm. of the actual composition, and that's why, because there's like seven minutes of it. Bernstein was already a legend by this point, having composed the score for the Ten Commandments, the Magnificent Seven, and To Kill a Mockingbird, among other stone-cold classics. The theme for the Magnificent Seven alone is enough to make someone's career. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, just it's running through my head right now. Uh, the boys arrive in the town they choose to stop in, East Proctor, and find a pub named The Slaughtered Lamb. I mean, geez. The sign has a beastly wolf's head on a pike. Jack is very dubious, asking where the lamb is. Guess what? You're it. (laughs) 
and, and apparently Griffin Dunn ad-libbed. What kind of advertisement is that? Right. Apparently he ad-libbed that. And I, I maybe not an ad-libbed. What, are you expecting the Hilton? You know, or something. And they are greeted by the entire pub coming to a dead stop to stare at them. Mm-hmm. They even have to say, it's very cold outside. May we come in? And the barmaid just blinks and slightly nods yes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, I feel like I've walked into places like this before, though. <laughs> Maybe not quite this bad, but... Right, not to a dead stop, but still, a, everybody gives you the side eye. Yeah, what are you looking around here for? Yeah. Uh, it, may, it reminds me of uh, Bob Seger turn the page when he talks about mm-hmm. you walk into a restaurant, come out from the cold, and feel the eyes upon you, you know, shaking yeah. out the cold and all that. And they don't have anything they ask for, including tea, but the rather unfriendly barmaid does agree to make that for them if they'd like. She's played by Lila Kay, who actually played Jenny Hall in the 1984 BBC miniseries version of The Invisible Man. Oh, okay. So she played, you know, Uno O'Connor's character. <laughs> so another, you know, barmaid, basically. Jack notices a pentagram, or pentangle, as he calls it, Scrawled on the wall with candles around it. David says maybe the owners are from Texas, which makes them say, remember the Alamo. And the barmaid does the film with John Wayne. She even mentions seeing it at a theater in London. And considering our final act begins in a theater in London, Hmm. foreshadowing. Uh, The chess player has some unkind words to say about the film and begins to tell a joke. But Jack is still going on about the five-pointed star used in witchcraft and how it's the mark of Universal Pictures' The Wolfman. So we're getting a direct reference to that film, and it's not the only time or the only Mm-mm. classic werewolf film these characters will reference. Yeah. So that proves that Jack and David are us. They're, yes. They're two film nerds. Yes. So they, if that, if David and Jack had lived, they'd be having a, a movie podcast right now. Mm-hmm. You know. So <laughs> Jack wants David to ask him what the candles are for, and he directly references warding off monsters. So could this have worked in London later? I mean. Maybe David should have told Alex to do this. I don't know. I don't, you think about it, you know. I don't know. The chess player is played by John Glover, who also appeared in another werewolf film in three years, The Company of Wolves. He is also known for Alien 3 and appeared on Doctor Who, like a lot of the people in this film. So the chess player tells the joke with Remember the Alamo as a punchline, and the whole pub is just roaring. Jack takes the opportunity to ask what the star on the wall is for. And the whole room, again, goes dead silent. Mm-hmm. And the man throwing the darts, he is very upset. I'm like, really? Dude, chill. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I've never missed that board before. Uh, the Jack, you know, Jack's question has made him miss the dartboard for the first time. He comes over and points at them. I mean, chill out, dude. I mm-hmm. think he's more upset about that than what they're asking about. Yeah. Yeah. He's played by David Schofield, or Schofield, I might be pronouncing it wrong, who is also known for Gladiator, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, and of course... Doctor Who. Yes. Uh, if this is a drinking game, if we say Doctor Who and Coronation Street, you'll be drunk by the end of this. Uh-huh. Uh, David suggests they go, but Jack is hungry. The dark player tells him there's no food there. The chess player tells him to go, but God be with him. The barmaid pleads with the man to stop them, but dark player says stick to the road and stay off the moors. And before they leave, the chess player says, beware the moon. So I think I would just lean up against the building outside until sunrise, wouldn't you? Uh-huh. Yeah, just, yeah. You, you got your little backpacks there, just go around back. I mean, I'm know. sure they've got, like, sleeping bags or something. Yeah, it just, yeah, exactly. I mean, they've got that giant pack, so there's got to be a sleeping bag in there. I never really noticed this before, but they walk away from the village. Mm-hmm. The slaughtered lamb was the first building they came to, and they walked back towards the countryside, 
despite looking for an inn or something, as David puts it. Oh, true. So, and we noticed before they walk, they're off the road when they walk to the slaughtered lamb. Yeah. After the guy told them, stay on the road. You know, so these boys cannot take direction. Oh, so typical man. <laughs> Uh, you like a, should have known that was a uh, typical woman who can't give direction. Uh, we cut back to the pub, and the barmaid is insisting that they oh, should, you get two for that. should let them go. Chess player says, should, I have never gotten you lost in 32 years. <laughs> yeah, but you haven't given direction. You've just been following them. Should the world know our business? Oh, oh I'm, let me cover this movie. Chess player says, should the world know our business? And tart player responds, it's murder then. And he's kind of changed his tune because yeah. he was the one that was like, you made me miss. Get out, you know. Yeah, and, oh yeah. <laughs> and, and and the chess player says, "Then mutter it is. It's in God's hands now." I'm just like, "Wow, really, guys? Well, maybe if you guys had a cover story made up for the star and didn't act so freaking suspicious, yeah, you could have let the boy stay until sunrise and not been party to murder and supernatural cursing." Yeah, you know. I mean, come on. We should mention the other non, mostly non-speaking chess player is Rick Mayall. Famous British comedian who is probably best known here for the young ones and the movie Drop Dead Fred with Phoebe Cates. He played Peeves in Harry mm-hmm. Potter in The Sorcerer's yep. Stone, but that part was cut. And apparently he does show up briefly in Prisoner of Azkaban. Is that true? No. That's what I, I, I Well, had... not not as Peeves, though. Oh, he, okay. Yeah. Is he somebody else? Yeah, he's just background. Oh, okay. I believe. I believe. Now, okay. I'm, I think that's the case, but. Yeah. Maybe they just used some unused footage of him from the first one and dropped I, him in. Cause I don't he, know. Because he's just a ghost floating around, so. Yeah. While they ponder why the locals reacted the way they did, the boys just veer right off the road into the moors. We cut back to the pub, and the barmaid is still trying to convince them to go back. But since it starts raining, she says they'll be safe. So, I guess cloud cover makes the werewolf revert back. I don't know. I don't know. But. Well, you know, wet dog. That's nobody. (laughs) (laughs) He's self-conscious about it. I can't attack anybody when I smell like a wet dog. Yep. But it stops raining, and then the pub goers hear the howl. She begs them to do something. But both the chest and dart players say they hear nothing. I mean, go find them, conk them in the head, keep them in the back, and dump them out somewhere in the morning. It'd be better than what they did. Yeah. You know, I mean, geez. Then, of course, David and Jack hear it, too. And it can't be a coyote. They joke about the hound of the Baskervilles, and in some ways, the werewolf here is more like that supposed hound from hell than a traditional werewolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, they decide to head back to the slaughtered lamb, but now they are lost. Stick to the road, guys. You know. Again, two <laughs> men together. <laughs> Pretty soon, they feel surrounded, and then it's in front of them. We don't see what they see, but when they speculate that it might be a dog, do you think they see its eyes in the moonlight? Something, yeah. Yeah, I think. Or they, the basic outline. Or, yeah, you know. yeah. David trips while they are running and screams. But and you think at first something probably grabbed him. Jack says, "You really scared me, you shithead." <laughs> uh, what a great way to cut the tension because as he's helping him up, bam. Yeah. Uh, we don't see much, but some large hairy thing tackles Jack and just starts tearing at him with his fangs and claws. Griffin Dunn's screams are very realistic and very disturbing, even more so because David gets up and runs away. Yeah, he does. He leaves him. Yeah, so in this moment, would you run or try to kick this thing off your friend? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I, You know, you don't know until you're, con- hopefully nobody's ever confronted by, you know, a, a werewolf right. attacking their friend. But, you know, or I mean, even if it's a big dog or something, you know. 
I kicked a dog off our dog one time and just jumped in the middle of a bunch of dogs and kicked it off our dog. Yeah, and I've done that too. <laughs> yeah, so, but. I, I mean, I, I went and shot a gun over their heads one time. Yeah. They were having a fight. Yeah. Despite Baker's warnings, Dunn ripped the foam latex the wolf head puppet was made out of while fighting it. Uh, Baker wasn't too happy about it, and apparently he was controlling the puppet and pummeled him harder with it <laughs> the second head. So, when he screams, he's killing me, David does say, Jack, and turns around. I will say I think it's interesting that if you watch the actual attack, the monster backs off and Jack essentially dies on camera. But while there's plenty of fake blood, there are no huge wounds on his face or neck. No, I know. And then when we see him later, wait a minute. Yeah, exactly. We later see that the left side of his face and neck are essentially ripped off. Uh-huh. So was this a mistake or a deliberate move to not ruin the gory surprise later? Right. I don't know. Either way, I think they should have cut away before the monster backed off. So you didn't see, yeah. So you didn't see that he was done with it. Yeah. Uh, when David comes back, we see Jack's body. It's lifeless. Uh, you can't see those wounds because of all the blood, and that side of him's in the shadow. And I don't know, maybe the wolf did come back for another swipe. Who knows? Yeah. The wolf leaps at David as he stands in disbelief, and he gets him down, scratching at him. I don't know if he actually got a true bite. I know, that's what I was wondering. Because there's not a big gory wound. No. He's got like the couple of scratches on his face and the ones across his, his chest. chest. So in this movie, just the scratch of a werewolf can curse you. Right. That's pretty bad, yeah. And then the slaughtered lamb posse decides to show up and shoot the beast. Now these guys have could have probably done this a long time ago. Uh, if killing the last werewolf ends the bloodline, why didn't these guys put this poor bastard or his predecessor out of their misery years ago? Right. I mean, you know, I'm assuming this guy was a friend, pub goer, somebody Something in the community. They knew, yeah. Somebody they knew. Oh yeah. Old Joe down the road, he's a werewolf, you know, when the full moon comes out, you know, or lock him up, you know, make sure something. you lock him up or something, yeah. David turns his head and sees the body of a dying, naked, middle-aged man lying next to him with multiple gunshot wounds. He's played by Patty Ryan, best known for Monty Python's Meaning of Life, but also appeared in several Hammer productions, including Countess Dracula. Oh. Yeah. Uh, the pub goers move closer to David, and we see from his POV, and then we fade to black. We cut to the hospital in London, and Nurse Alex Price is shedding light on the subject by opening the blinds. Nice metaphor for how her love will bring some brightness to David's life in his darkest days and nights. Mm-hmm. Yes. Alex is played by Jenny Auguter, who had already had quite a career, first as a child actress in TV and film productions like The Railway Children, and then exploded as a sex symbol in Logan's Run. She continues to work today, starring as another nurse and called the midwife for the past 10 years, and playing one of the World Security Council members in the Avengers and Captain America, the Winter Soldier. She's the one that Black Widow disguised herself as. So, in that movie. In the commentary track, it's clear that both Naughton and Dunn were enchanted by Auguter, but none of their attempts to woo her into, onto, into a date went anywhere. But you can't blame them for trying. Well, no. She's very pretty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's very pretty, and she's got the British accent, which just, you know, just does things for guys just yeah. like it does you know or it, whatever your persuasion is it, it does British accents work for people you know just you know they just do another nurse Susan Gallagher comments that David is an American and she thinks he's a Jew I had a look she says <laughs> Gallagher is played by Anne Marie Davis whose only other credit on IMDB is the British TV series Angels which was about nurses typecasting yes 
Uh, Dr. Hirsch arrives and agrees with Alex that circumcision is a common practice in the states now, no matter their religious affiliation. Busted, uh, but not and apparently wasn't circumcised, so Landis had to be careful not to show too much of him close up. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Yeah. I'm glad that, you know. Well, there was plenty, there was plenty seen otherwise. Uh-huh. Hirsch is played by John Woodbine, who is still acting today and has had a distinguished career on stage and film and on TV. He appeared in two British TV staples that a lot of other folks in this cast have cropped up on, as we said, Doctor Who, Who and Coronation Street. In recent years, he appeared in the series The Crown and in Landis's Burke and Hare, along with Agar. Uh, so I've never seen that Burke and Hare. I need to mm-hmm. need to watch that at some point. Alex tells her she called out for Jack, and she asks what happened. He says the police say they were attacked by an escaped lunatic. Well, the lunatic part's apt, because, yeah. you know, the lunatic is somebody that's supposed to be agitated by, by the, the moon. Yeah, yeah, so actually makes sense. Uh, clearly, Alex is already somewhat infatuated with David, as she doesn't leave at first, despite Hirsch pushing her along. I like the little smile he gets when, when she leaves. Mm-hmm. He knows Florence Nightingale syndrome when he sees it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we get our first dream sequence while Hirsch is actually checking David's pupils. It's just a POV of someone running through the woods this time. Right. It's very Evil Dead. Although this is before Evil Dead. Then David awakens and Hirsch introduces himself, telling David he's in London. When David asks about Jack, Hirsch tells him, prepare yourself for a shock. Pause. Jack is dead. (laughs) Just like... Yeah. (laughs) Not a lot of prep time, dude. I'm just saying. Uh, That seems slightly brusque, but it's nothing like the U.S. consulate or whoever it was from the embassy. Mr. Collins, who's being way too chipper. At first, about all. I mean, of this. he's just smiling along, like, oh, you know, you're you've been in a coma for three three weeks, and your friend's you, dead. You know, your friend's dead, and you you know you got scars, and yeah. Like, yeah, hey, yeah for you. <laughs> when David gets agitated, Hirsch has to restrain him and order Alex to give him a sedative. A sedative, uh, but Mr. Collins is really put out about him being upset and not thanking him for the fact that he's contacted both his and Jack's parents and told the police that he'll cooperate with them on his behalf. These dumbass kids. They never appreciate anything you do for them. Nice. <laughs> Collins is played by none other than Frank Oz, and you can kind of hear his Burt from Sesame Street voice creep in when he says, Mr. Kessler, Mr. Kessler, over and over again. Ah, <laughs> oh, you know, it's just like, well, Fozzie Bear, maybe. I thought you sounded like Raymond. Oh, Raymond. Oh, it's like, oh, damn, well, Robert, uh, my brother Robert's a cop that found you out in the field. I'm sorry what happened to your friend, you know. <laughs> it did kind of, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Oz had appeared in Landis's The Blues Brothers as the guard working the property desk when Jake is let out of Joliet Prison. So, Hirsch tells David he's been unconscious and in the hospital for three weeks, as you said. Hirsch mentions his scars coming from his duel with a lunatic and how they are said to have the strength of ten men. As he's drifting off, David tells him it was a wolf. Both Alex and Hirsch are stunned a bit by this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, hmm. Then Inspector Villers and Sergeant McManus arrive to talk to Dr. Hirsch. These guys could almost have wandered in from a carry-on film. Stuffy, slightly effete, bossy na- inspector and his bumbling, oafish sergeant. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they're definitely just comedy. Uh, Villers is played by Don McKellop, who, guess what, appeared in both Doctor Who and... Coronation Street. McManus is played by Paul Kimber, who was in The Great Train Robbery and The Long Good Friday. McManus speaks before Villers, then knocks over the stacked medical trays Hirsch has in his office. Hirsch is also dealing with a boorish friend who apparently he has dinner plans with, 
and calls his office. He tells the receptionist to say he's dead. This could be foreshadowing, but Hirsch isn't the one who'll end up missing his head by the end of this film. No. Uh, when they talk to David, McManus is willing to believe him, knowing that two young men could have defended themselves against one middle-aged one, but Biller shoots them down. I know East Proctor was covering this up, but how did they explain how mangled Jack's corpse was? Right. I mean, did they plant a knife at the scene or something? A chainsaw? I, I mean, don't know. Like, I think the dude is like, it's just, ah, woo. After David converses with Hirsch about how there was no witnesses to confirm what the police said, we cut to another dream, and this time it's David Naughton running through the woods, buck naked with a cheese sandwich. <laughs> yup. <laughs> Uh, he tackles a poor deer and then is seen munching on its severed leg covered in blood. British deer are much furrier than ours here. I think so. Do you notice that? Yeah. Which our deer aren't native to Kentucky. I think they were dropped off here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. Uh, we then follow Alex around as she makes the rounds of the children's ward and interacts with a young boy whose favorite word seems to be no and asks the food porter about how David is doing. She's clearly smitten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then she comes in and finds David hasn't eaten. And he has to take his pill with food. He says he's not hungry, and when he refuses to eat, she grabs his nose and shoves it in his open mouth, and they get on a first-name basis and give each other googly eyes. <laughs> you know. uh, despite Augeter not agreeing to go on a date with Naughton, they do seem to have some real chemistry here. Uh, do you think the movie would work if they didn't? No, especially later. I mean, that chemistry, I mean, I was just like, did they really fake that scene or <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty convincing. Uh, David has another dream again in the woods, but this time he's in his puffer jacket and backpack and sees himself in the hospital bed. Nurse Alex walks up, and then we cut to David in the bed, and he opens his mouth. It's full of fangs, and his eyes are yellow and animalistic. Plus, he's got dead blue skin. Yeah. Uh, this is an iconic shot. And a great jump scare, but Naughton said this was the most painful makeup he endured due to the real glass lenses they had to use. Oh, okay. That's back before they had the contacts that they, you know, use nowadays. David tells Hirsch about his strange dreams, but the conversation goes back to the lunatic, with David defending his position that it was an animal. Of course, they're both right. Hirsch does say David's wounds were dressed when he arrived, and he hadn't seen Jack's corpse. But if they sent Jack home, as we'll see they did, how do they explain the severity of his wounds again? I mean, how did they explain that to his parents? I'm sure they had to identify his body. You I know, I mean, what would, you know, just, ah, I just don't know. I, we're thinking too hard about this. But that's what you do when you do a podcast. He tells her she doesn't want to be alone. So do you think he was angling to get Alex to stay with him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Uh, she reads him a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, David starts to drift off, and then we get... The Muppet Show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Frank Oz is back, but this time as the voice of Miss Piggy, along with Jim Henson as Kermit. We see some kids watching this in their living room, which is at David's house. He's doing homework at the dining room table. His dad is reading a newspaper on the sofa, and his mom is preparing dinner when they hear a knock at the door. And there's a big age gap between he and his siblings. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, he's quite a bit older than them. His dad opens it to be blown away by monstrous wolf-like Nazis armed with machine guns. This is really similar to that game that down in uh, Pigeon Forge. That live-action game, it really is. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, it's very that's similar. right. That, it was yeah. that uh, virtual reality game. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You're right. I remember that. Yeah. 
Uh, it was in that wax museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They kill his family while David is held by another Nazi with a knife to his throat. They burn the house with torches, and the monster slices David's throat, and he wakes up. He tells Alex he's had a nightmare, and she says she has just this thing, walks over to the window, and pulls the blinds, only to have one of the monster Nazis stab her repeatedly. Then David really wakes up. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this, this scene is a true non sequitur in the film, and some people question if it belongs here. The Jewish David is clearly having some deep-seated fear of Nazis, which, with good reason, of course. The monstrous makeup Rick Baker created is effective, if somewhat limited compared to the other effects in the film. They're essentially really done static masks. Yeah. Really well done static masks. So what did you think about this sequence? It is kind of odd out of place, you know, something. I don't know. Yeah, I think Landis using these scenes... You know these dream sequences to hint at the werewolf to come. I think it's smart because it allows the slow build to the eventual transformation, but it also keeps things from becoming talking heads. You know, just him in the bed talking to Alex right. and Doctor Hirsch. It also makes us feel about the characters, particularly David. And it's still how his mind is changing as well, with these wild thoughts of his own future peppered in with his worst fears. So I think it works, but it is, it is this one's particularly mm-hmm. really strange. <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, they, they've actually made, like, action figures of the monstrous, you know, werewolves with the guns and the, you know, I don't know if they put the Nazi iconography on them, probably not, but I think NECA made them a few years ago or something. Then after the orderly brings him breakfast, we get our first visit from Dead Jack, who just wants to talk and eat a piece of toast. Yeah. <laughs> Censors demanded that the toast not fall through the hole in Jack's neck, however, because they had planned that, or maybe even filmed it. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. (laughs) David, who, of course, is freaked out, wonders if he's still dreaming. They discussed how Jack was indeed buried in New York, and Jack was surprised by how many people came, but David wasn't because he was a very well-liked person. Yeah. (laughs) I love how casual this discussion becomes at different points. Dunn says Landis directed him to always be upbeat and chipper while in his ever-deteriorating state. This is a great contrast to the truly disturbing makeup Baker crafted for Dunn. In fact, Dunn was depressed while wearing this, facing his own mortality head-on. His mother was very upset when she saw it in the theater as well. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. You know, it's just like, ugh. Both Dunn and Naughton commented on the flappy piece of skin hanging on his neck which always seems to grab the attention of everyone who watches the film. Yeah. Yeah, it's just this little flap that's flapping, moving around. We get a call back to the object of Jack's affection, Debbie Klein. She cried a lot, but ran into the arms of a guy they knew named Mark Levine, who, according to Jack, is an asshole. Life mocks me even in death. But he's laughing about it. Yeah. (laughs) So then Jack lays it all out to him. They were attacked by a werewolf. His unnatural death makes him one of the undead, doomed to walk the earth until the bloodline is severed and the last remaining werewolf is dead. And that's David. And he says, the supernatural, the power of darkness, it's all true. The undead surround me. Have you ever talked to a corpse? It's boring. Uh, Despite what we're seeing, that's a funny line coming from a wise ass like that. Uh, But then he tells David to take his own life before he kills others. He tells him, beware the moon, David. So there's that warning again. Yeah. These scenes are very much like when Scrooge is visited by Jacob Marley because both ghosts are trying to free their friend's soul from what grips them. Mm-hmm. But in Scrooge's case, it's greed and hatred, and in David, it's a supernatural it's a curse. curse. Yeah. yeah, plus he's also trying to help himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He calls for Alex, who runs in, and of course Jack is gone. David kisses her, 
then states he's a werewolf and was visited by Jack. She asks if he is all right, and he says he'll let her know in two days when the moon, the full moon rises. He's due to be released tomorrow, and she wonders if he has a place to stay in London. Now that's what I call health care. Well, you know. <laughs> they do have universal health care. Yeah. Griffin Dunn commented about David's parents never coming, but why wouldn't he fly back home immediately after release? Right. I mean, I mean, other than getting to go home and sleep with Jenny Otter. You know, just like, oh, Mom and Dad, I can't come home for a couple of days. Sorry. Uh, so she's going to take him home with her, and we get a few slice-of-life scenes of them at the grocery, commenting on inflation and the rising cost of everything, timely. Uh-huh. And then a fun bit on the subway or tube when they are surrounded by punk rock kids, two of which are making out while David makes faces behind them. Uh, I think Landis is smart to make us care about these people and brief, briefly forget, oh, yeah, this is a horror movie. This probably isn't going to end well. Right. You know, you get invested in their relationship, even though, oh, yeah, he's a werewolf. You know. Uh, she gives him a tour of her apartment, and David notices there's only one bed. She tells him she's not in the habit of bringing home stray American men. She says, I find you very attractive and a little bit sad. <laughs> I mean, she's like, I've had seven lovers, three of which were one-night stands. I mean, she's basically saying brought you home to have you yeah you know i'm like okay yeah yeah and she says you know i'm gonna take a shower if you want to watch telly no that's not how that works out and i like the look on his face as she walks out like i said when we were watching it's like jackpot Uh (laughs) and then we get the sex scene uh, or actually two scenes one in the shower and one in the bed aren't those kind of out of order if you think about it you know i don't know all of this no because you know she's coming home from work she's taking a shower oh okay all of this to Van Morrison's Moon Dance. If you didn't love that song before, now you have a whole new reason to. Yeah, so, <laughs> David gets up to pee. Uh, he never washes his hands, however. I know. Because he was going to, I guess. But he closes the, the, the vanity door slightly open. He closes it only to then see Jack in the reflection. Uh-huh. Uh, this jump scare has been ripped off a thousand times since. It may have appeared in other movies before, but I think this is the one everybody kind of thinks Thanks of. Yeah. yeah, it's such a trope. Movies will show the mirror door slightly open and then show nothing when it's closed to make you jump. Like, there's going to be something there, and then when they close, you're like, oh, oh, there's nothing there. And then something will come out from somewhere else. else. Yeah, yeah and, and make you jump, yeah. Jack is now mostly a mossy green color, showing he's continued to decompose. And is it just me, or did they make him seem a little fuller face, as if he was know. bloated? He looks a little, because Griffin Dunn's very thin, he looks a little puffy, you know, which makes sense, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Jack has to check out Alex, a nurse, huh? Even in death, he's a horny college kid. Yeah. So yeah. when he sits down in Alex's living room, he picks up a Mickey Mouse figure, moves his arms, and says, Hi, David! Uh, in a Mickey-like voice. Apparently done ad-lib this. <laughs> so, yeah. Alex has quite a few Disney items and posters from Casablanca and Gone with the Wind and other American items in her apartment. Maybe she was predisposed to being an American, to be into American culture, and maybe that's one reason why she's into American men. Yeah. <laughs> and we have that one Dak and Minnie Mouse figure that's on her television. Right. Yeah, it's right over there. Uh, Jack tries to get David to believe his warnings, and David says, Believe what? That tomorrow night, beneath the full moon, I'll sprout hair and fangs and eat people? And that's exactly what, what he's going to he does. Yeah. 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 Uh, You'll kill and make others like me, and I'm not having a nice time here. Yeah. <laughs> I will not be threatened by a walking meatloaf. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Harsh. 
I never noticed, but when Alex gets up to check on David, she has on makeup and earrings, which she did in the shower. I noticed that again. But she took a shower, so she still got makeup on and stuff. Did she put her makeup back on when she... Oh. Yeah, yeah you know, it's just... Hmm. Yeah. Uh, David tells her about Jack, and she says that she believes that he loved him very much, and he feels guilty about what happened to him. Well, he ran like a bitch, so he kind of should. Yeah. <laughs> so just, you know. He then asks her if she's ever seen the wolf man and she says the one with oliver reed yeah so shout out to hammer's excellent curse of the werewolf which we of course covered here as well as the wolf man right but you know she's british so she thinks of the hammer mm-hmm. movies makes sense david name drops how bela Lugosi bit lon cheney jr at claude Rains playing cheney's father had to kill him he points out that he thinks a werewolf can only be killed by someone who loves them that was a component hinted at in the original film and it was mentioned in House of Frankenstein where Larry is killed, quote-unquote, by the gypsy girl who loves him. Right. But he kills her, too, at the same time. Alex is giggling through all this, saying she's torn between feeling very sorry for him and finding him terribly attractive. And, I mean, I'm sorry, but where is her sense of self-preservation? This guy's a nut bar, and you just screwed him. <laughs> you know? And invited him into your home. I mean, that's true. I mean... He is, he's unhinged. Yeah. He's, he's seeing dead people. Uh-huh. He thinks he's a werewolf. Right. I mean, but she's all, you know, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, she's it all. It must be good. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Then we cut to Dr. Hirsch investigating the events in East Proctor. Again, what a hospital. I know. Right? I mean, around here, you're lucky if a doctor bothers to come in and talk to you for more than a minute, even if you're missing a limb or something. Oh. I mean, I've actually had to tell doctors, get your hand off the doorknob. Yes. Come back in here and tell me what you're talking about. Let's have Oh, a... the, I made that man so mad. Yeah, well, come in and tell you something's going on with your kid. Yeah. yeah. This is a long time ago, but yeah. I'm still mad. I'm still salty about it. I know. Yeah. Hirsch goes into the pub, starts asking about what happened to the American boys, and everyone is playing dumb. When he points out the pentangle, this time the barmaid says, it's been there for 200 years, and they thought about painting over it, but left it out of tradition. Now, if they had this story made up about a month ago, this movie would have been about five minutes long. Exactly. <laughs> he tells them he was David's doctor, and he mentioned that he talked of werewolves. He asked the chess player for a game, but he's not interested. The dark player leaves to check on the dogs, and the chess player admonishes him that the dogs are fine. So who is this guy that apparently runs the whole village? I mean, what is the deal with the chess player? I think he was related to the werewolf they killed. It could have been. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think whether it was his brother or, you know, Cousin. something or something. Yeah. 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 And is the dark player related to him, too? Is that his nephew? I, well, or? you're talking about a small village. Everybody, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's a shallow gene pool. Yeah. <laughs> it's a purebred werewolf. Yeah. Uh, Hirsch asks about food, and the barmaid says, there's no food here. Followed up by Chess saying, there's nothing for you here, sir. Again, such friendly folk. But Hirsch was real ballsy here. He did say something about surviving Rommel earlier, so he's probably meant to be a war vet who isn't scared of a little confrontation. Exactly. Yeah. Hirsch goes to his car but sees that the dark player is watching him. He approaches him, and he warns him that David is in danger, that they shouldn't have let him leave. He tells him how he'll change under the moon. He does say there's something about this place, so apparently the bloodline of the werewolf seems to hang around here. Yes. Around East Proctor. Makes you wonder if there's still another one running around. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the then chess player sees them talking and yells, That's enough! That's enough! Uh, dark player stumbles off through the cemetery, 
again, this guy's got to be something. Oh yeah. In this community, he's got to be. There's got to be something more to all that. Which is, I mean, I'm glad they don't tell you because you can like, you know, paint it in your mind. It doesn't really matter, but it kind of adds layers to it, you know, to the mythology of the movie. Uh, so I do have to ask this: Why didn't they just kill David? If they knew he was going to become a werewolf and murder people, and they were already going to at least partially cover up what happened, why not shoot David, shoot Jack's corpse, and put a gun in the hand of the old werewolf? Problem solved. Because they felt guilty about it, because they sent him out there, you know, sent yeah. them boys out there, and they just probably just couldn't bring themselves to do it. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I couldn't do that either. But I mean, yeah. uh, you know, but at the same time, it's like, you know, they're they're so they obviously have been covering this up for a very long time. Yeah. You know, so yeah. So the next day at Alex's flat, she leaves for work. David has a dog bark at him with two creepy little girls giggling the whole time. And then he finds he's locked out. When he climbs through the window, a cat on the window ledge hisses at him. And this was achieved by someone holding another cat this one didn't like off camera. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> After snarling at himself comically in the mirror, David tries to pass the time. But at least he gets to do it to CCR's Bad Moon Rising. See, there you go. There's the bathroom on the right. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Sorry. We saw, we saw John Fogarty in concert one time. Yes, we did. Great show. I've got a shirt. Uh, we briefly cut to Alex in the hospital with the Noah boy again and see the moon is indeed full. Then it's back to her apartment in another version of Blue Moon, this time by Sam Cooke. Then comes the most famous scene in the film, and undoubtedly the one that got Rick Baker the very first Oscar ever given for special makeup effects. David is reading, but suddenly screams in pain, Jesus Christ, despite being Jewish. Right. Yeah, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, he screams, I'm burning up, and he's clearly instantly drenched in sweat. I mean, like, he's on, he's dry reading that book, and then he's on his knees, like, sweaty. Just like like somebody poured a bucket of water on him. Now, why do you think he's Jewish? They said he was Jewish. No, they said he must be Jewish. Yeah, but I mean, he's, I mean, it's been confirmed he's Jewish. That's why he had a nightmare about the Nazis and everything. Okay, you're, okay, you're sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Yeah, okay. He, he's Jewish. Yeah. Okay. David Kessler is Jewish, yeah. And he's drenched in sweat. He rips his shirt and takes his pants off. Another commando type this season on House Franklin's side. I uh, know. No undies. The Invisible Man and David Kessler, they're commandos. You know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and why? I mean, he took took his clothes off. I'm like, well, he's burning up. You know, and I noticed something. He he went outside when he was, I put this in the notes, but he went outside when he was bored, didn't know what to do with himself when he was agitated, like, well, I'm waiting to see if something happens, you know. And he, he opened the door to Alex's apartment into the hallway and then opened the door outside and he didn't close it. So no. that explains how the werewolf got oh, out. Yeah. But it's like, okay, that door's open. Couldn't somebody hear him screaming? Uh, I true. mean, because he's screaming in pain. I mean, it's like, you know. But it's also while she's at work, maybe, you know, the other people in that flat are. At work too? Yeah. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I mean, he screams for all he's worth. I mean, David Knott does a really great job of selling how painful. Being painful, yeah. Yeah. Of course, we get those wonderful in-camera effects that no amount of CGI can ever replace and shouldn't even try. Uh, you know, it, it's, again, the, the, between his, David Naughton's reactions to all this and then the, the visuals and the, the sound design yes. is, is very, very effective. Baker called much of this effect work change-o-heads or change-o-hands uh, based off casts of Naughton's body, the props are made of very stretchy rubber with mechanical and pneumatic devices to make them stretch and grow like his hands and the elongated claws and the muzzle growing on his face, although I think that's just a puppet. 
but unfortunately the material had so much plasticizer added to stretch it it didn't last long beyond filming yeah so i mean he's got some replicas but i don't think they're the actual screen used ones uh, David does apologize for calling Jack a walking meatloaf while he's going through this inhuman agony. Right. Uh, after the snout extension bit, we briefly pan over his body, but we still don't get to make out a lot of details. But it was more than Landis told Baker he was going to show. Uh, the results were so good, he didn't want to keep it off camera as much as he had planned. So, kind of like the opposite of Jaws. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they were going to show more, and then like, yeah, we can't show that much because it doesn't work. Um Baker had wanted a more traditional bipedal werewolf like the Wolfman, but Landis demanded a hound from hell. I think the end result looks great, but there's a part of me that wishes they'd stuck to somewhat of a hybrid, like what we see when the muzzle grows. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it works. I mean, yeah, it's just I mean, a different, different version. Yeah, I, I definitely think it works. It's, it, you know, it's kind of like in the Monster Squad, the, the in-between change is better than the final one. That's that's not the case here, but. It, it just, you know, I'm just more of a traditional guy. Uh, the werewolf's fir- first victims are a couple, Harry Berman and Judith Browns, who get out of a cab for a dinner party at their friend Sean's place, but pick the wrong night to try and pull the prank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Harry is Jeffrey Burridge, who appeared on Blake 7, and Judith is Brenda Cavendish, who appeared on the British horror anthology thriller, but not the Karloff one. Uh, they sneak around through the wooded area outside and run afoul of the beast. Meanwhile, Dr. Hirsch has arrived back at the hospital and asks Alex about David's whereabouts. And I like how Nurse Gallagher tries to cover for her taking him home. Yeah. She's going, um. Yeah, you know, she was like, you took him home with you, didn't you? You know, you know, there's all the talk of the hospital, I bet. Uh, Sean goes looking outside their flat at the insistence of his wife only to find Harry's arm yeah. not attached to Harry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> back at the hospital... Hirsch is convinced there was a cover-up in East Proctor. While he doesn't believe David could actually transform into a werewolf, he's concerned about what he may believe in his own mind due to the mass neurosis he detected in that town. So we're kind of back to some of the elements of the Wolfman, where no one believed Larry could actually change into a wolf, but that he may think he has and harm himself or others, like because Maliva's been filming right. for all this stuff, you know. So it's, it, you know, Landis is, obviously these guys know the Wolfman, so... Uh, then the werewolf kills three homeless men near the Thames River. We don't see any gore, just them reacting to what they see in a quick flash of the wolf's eyes and muzzle. Apparently the scenes of their murder were shot, but test audiences freaked out, and it was one of many cuts Landis had to make to keep this movie in the R category. I hope Winston, their dog, got away. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah. kill all the people you want, but let the animals live. We watched Let Me, Let Me In last night. We've never seen it before. Yeah. And there's an attack in that movie, and the little dog, the little wiener dog, gets away. The Dotson gets away. <laughs> but yep. We were like, go, oh, don't hurt the dog. Uh, eat that woman, but don't hurt the dog. Uh, Alf is played by Sidney Bromley, also known for The NeverEnding Story and Hammer's Prehistoric Women. Uh, Ted is played by Ted Singanew, who appeared in Dr. No and Hammer's The Mummy. Joseph is Will Lighton, who appeared in the BBC's production of War and Peace with Anthony Hopkins. So these guys have all been around. Yes. We then follow the rather unfortunate Gerald Bringsley, who gets off in the most empty subway tunnel of all time. I know, like <laughs> nobody anywhere. Yeah. You know, that's a little... Yeah, it is a little hard to swallow. He's mercilessly, mercilessly stalked by the off-camera growls of the werewolf. He's played by Michael Carter, who began his career with an episode of Doctor Who, recently appeared on House of the Dragon, but has legit geek cred playing Bib Fortuna in Return of the Jedi. Okay, okay. Yeah. Now, he didn't play him in Book of Boba Fett. But, right. But he's, because, you know, he 
Bib Fortuna had gotten kind of chunky, mm. you know, before Boba Fett killed him. Uh, he walked, spoiler warning, he walks, I guess that was technically in Mandalorian, not whatever, whatever. You know, that the, they ought to have just been one series and called it good. He walks past the poster for Airplane and See You Next Wednesday, which is a film that we'll talk a bit about in a little bit. Uh, then he sees the werewolf, but we don't. Then he really starts running. He falls onto an escalator going up and turns around. We see the shot from above him looking down past him at the floor below. And as he slowly slides up, the werewolf enters the top left corner of the screen. Uh-huh. This is a great shot showing how massive this thing is. But there is a boo-boo. If you look closely, the person controlling the puppet's foot can be seen entering the frame right before they cut to the next shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why didn't this guy turn around and run up the escalator? <laughs> well, I think when he fell onto the escalator, he hurt himself. Because if you notice, his nose is bloodied. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So I wonder if he didn't maybe even broke his ankle or something like that. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I don't know though, man. I think I'd, he might have caught me, but he'd had to work for it. I wouldn't have laid there for him, I tell you that. Uh, we close in on Bringsley's panning face and then a jump cut to a lion roaring at the camera. And we're at the London Zoo, and that's a great cut. You know, so David wakes up in the wolf cage. He's picking straw to, out of his mouth, but I wonder if he's got you know other stuff in his mouth. Yeah, I know. I thought that too. Yeah, Naughton said the wolves who approached him weren't really planned. That wasn't really planned, and he was told just to climb out, so he improvised. And he's really completely naked, and you get full frontal nudity here from a man, which is unusual. I know. Yeah, and I would not climb. A fence like that. I mean, it's essentially like climbing a chain link fence. Yes. Uh, not naked. No. What if stuff got caught? <laughs> oh. I mean, geez, you know, could be circumcised before it's over with. We briefly cut to Alex getting a call from Hirsch to see if she's heard from David. Then back to the zoo with his hilarious shenanigans to get himself some coverage. He runs into a stuffy old lady, steals a kid's balloons to cover himself, then yoinks an old woman's coat from a couple on a park bench. And they never noticed. Naughton said they were supposed to film at the zoo before opening hours, but the filming ran over. So when he's streaking behind the bench, those are real zoo patrons in the background. Oh, not shoot. Ax- not extras. I mean, what do you think? They're like, what? Yeah. It's like the time, oh, can I please tell my zoo story? Oh, yeah, you, you have a naked zoo story. Go ahead. I do. Um, back when I was in probably second, second, or, second or third grade, this was in elementary school, we went to the Cincinnati Zoo. Well, um, the Cincinnati Zoo is located in a not great... To get there, you have to go through a not real great part of Cincinnati. Yeah. And when we were going through there, everybody... This kid said, oh my gosh, there's a naked man. Well, all of the kids run over to the other side of the bus. I'm surprised we didn't pull it over. And there was a naked man on the corner, literally a naked man... He had a washcloth in one hand and a piece of soap in the other, and he had his hat on, and he tipped his hat to us <laughs> as we walk, went past him. And my mom always says, you know, when I came back from school that day and, you know, talk, asked me how my field trip was and what, what did I see, you know, what, what did you see at the zoo, Cindy? What did you see? A naked man, Mommy. I saw a naked man. <laughs> and still, that's the only thing I remember from that field trip. <laughs> Uh, hey, at least he was getting clean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hearst yeah. <laughs> picks up a paper from a newsstand that reads, Murder Victims Found Half-Eaten. Yeesh. Uh-huh. Uh, David gets in line for the bus 
wearing just the old woman's coat. I guess she had change in her pockets. Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's what I was trying to figure out because I'm like, how's he going to pay for the fare? Yeah. David comes back to Alex's flat and tells her all about his wild day, but doesn't remember anything that happened during his transformation. Hirsch calls and tells her to bring him to the hospital immediately. David is very energized and vigorous. He's nibbling on her while she's still on the phone. Makes you wonder what he'd done to her last night if, you know, ugh, you know, duh. Yeah. yeah, he's biting on her now. He's very enthusiastic as they walk to hail a cab. He says he feels great like an athlete, and he asks her if they can go back for a quickie. Yeah. <laughs> she should have given the poor bastard his last request. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the cabbie starts talking to them about the old demon barber of Fleet Street, which would be Sweeney Todd, which, you know, they made the movie right. with Johnny Depp, the play and all that. He compares last night's murders to those, and David learns what he really did the previous night. David gets out of the car and starts walking quickly, saying he's going to turn himself in. See, this is the part I don't understand. Okay, go ahead. She's taking him to the hospital, where presumably he's going to get committed. Yeah. Why, why not just go along with that? He doesn't want to hurt her or Dr. Hirsch or anybody. You know, he figures if they look put behind bars, he might not hurt anybody. I yeah, guess. but I mean, if he's put in a padded cell. I guess. I mean, to me. Yeah. I mean, it's. It's not being very. I mean, you just found out you killed six people. You wouldn't be real rad. And you're a werewolf. You well, know? I, it's confirmed yeah. that you're more or less confirmed you're a werewolf. You know, it's like. Uh, he's going to turn himself in. He finds a Bobby taking pictures with some kids and begs him to arrest him. He confesses to the murders. But the Bobby refuses to arrest him, telling him to move on. Dave even calls the Queen a man and Prince Charles a derogatory term for homosexual. And all he gets is a stern talking to. Yes. He even throws off on Winston Churchill and what else? He said one other thing. I can't remember. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, this was filmed while England was preparing for the royal wedding of Charles and Princess Diana. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a little there's a little credit at the end. It's like we would like to congratulate Prince Charles and his wedding, his yeah. marriage to. Diane Spencer or Diana Spencer. Uh, I think I would have run him in just for disturbing the peace, wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know. Alex tries to reason with him, but he keeps telling her Jack was right. He tells her he loves her, kisses her, and runs off. And I think it's interesting that when he tells her, I love you, and she's just like, oh, you know. She's like, what? Yeah, yeah. at first, yeah. Well, that's like you save it for the end. I know, I know, but still. Alex is then in Hirsch's office speaking with him, and the, as always, useless Inspector Villers and Sergeant McManus are there. Villers admits that they believe that an animal was involved in last night's attack, but he doesn't see any connection with David. Even if you didn't buy him being an actual werewolf, wouldn't you have him as your only suspect at this point? Right. I mean, you, all these people, this guy went missing last night. Mm -hmm. All these people died. He kept saying he was going to become this ferocious animal. I mean, even right. if, if he's off in his head and he's got some kind of tools or something he's using to become a werewolf. Yes, to mimic it. To yeah. mimic being a werewolf. I mean, he's like a copycat type killer. I mean, that's just, I mean, yeah. What a sucky cop. Anyway, David then calls home in one of those classic British red phone booths. He talks to his little sister, Rachel. He tells her to tell his parents he loves them and he loves her and their brother, Max. He tells her not to fight with Max. Max and Rachel are actually the name of Landis's kids, and Max Landis is a director writer that's kind of he's kind of a controversial figure in and of himself. Uh, this scene is really sad, and it shows us something horror movies rarely bother with. Now, here's something about that particular scene: when okay. he is in the booth mm -hmm. and the camera is coming around, yeah, I kept thinking that it was going to be a dream sequence, and that you were going to come around, and he was going to be a wolf. You know, oh. as they come, you know, mm, mm. as they come around, and I was like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, you know, well, yeah, it could because they were panning around. Yeah, they never really—they don't show a lot of him. I mean, they do show him in the booth, but there's a lot of that outside. 
in the big Fujifilm banner reflecting yeah. in there, which is weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course, the wolf man was killed by his father, and it cursed the werewolf. Leon's adopted father had to kill him, too. Yes. Uh, knowingly. He knows that he's the werewolf in that one, unlike, you know, Sir John Talbot. But most horror films treat the characters like fodder, never pondering their human connections. How do families react to having their teen murdered by Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, or Michael Myers? Mm-hmm. You know, Of course, that takes the visceral fun out of those films. But by making David a real person with real family connections, mm-hmm. it makes his story that much more tragic. Yes. Because now we know he's got... I mean, we saw him in that dream sequence, but now he's he's been on the phone with his sister, and we kind of learned... We kind of learn how their family dynamics are. Like, mom and dad would have never let me stay at the house when I was 10, you know, by myself and things like that. Then he sees Jack now looking even worse than before, standing outside of a porno theater showing the nonstop orgy that is See You Next Wednesday. This is the last time we see Dunn in makeup. We never see him close up just from a distance, and we'll learn why in a bit in this particular makeup. David pays to get in and sits with Jack, who is waiting for him. They watch a bit of the film, and we watch a few minutes of it ourselves. <laughs> well, and the funny thing is, it's I mean, even though you have her, this horrific Jack sitting next to him, David is still so riveted by, oh, boobies. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's still looking at the screen. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're such a dude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, See You Next Wednesday was a running gag in many of Landis' films. He pulled the title from a line of dialogue in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's referenced in posters in Schlock, Trading Places, Coming to America, as a billboard in the Blues Brothers, and at cinemas screening it in Kentucky Fried Movie and the video for Michael Jackson's Thriller. Mm. So it, it's gotten around in his stuff. Uh, the scenes for the porno movie within the movie were actually shot first before the rest of the film. There's an outtake on the DVD of Landis talking in front of a door. There's no audio, but he's talking in front of this door, and then the doorway falls over. And the porno cast is at it behind him, and the, the woman runs off, and yeah, so it's, yeah, they, they, they were definitely having fun with this. This time, Jack is mostly a very realistic-looking puppet, with Dunn behind it controlling the mouth. Baker knew that makeup is an additive process, so to show that Jack now has part of his skeleton showing, he couldn't build it up on Dunn's face. Mm-hmm. So he took a cast of his face and then began to chip away at the sculpt, carving in the skull shape. It's very effective because he just sits there and doesn't get up and move. If he'd done that, I don't think it would have worked. It looks great despite David telling him, you look awful. Uh, He does later say he's happy to see him, which says a lot about his mental state. Yeah. You know, I'm happy to see a friendly face even though it's like half of it's gone. You know, it's just like David is questioning whether he really committed the murders, but David introduces him to his victims. Bringsley, whose wounds look very similar to Jack's. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, really pours it on him, telling him he left his wife a widow and his children fatherless. He tells him he's now one of the living dead until the bloodline is severed. He points at him and says, You must die, David Kessler. Uh, on the other hand, Harry and Judith are quite chipper, yeah, yeah. smiling while their teeth is covered in gore and blood. And just <laughs> Alf, Ted, and Joseph are there as well, and they all have advice on how David should kill himself. Most agree a gun is best. And David asks if he needs a silver bullet. Jack says, oh, be serious, would you? Right. But if all this other werewolf lore is true, why not the silver bullet? Yeah, I know. I don't understand why that's such a far-fetched thing, you know. But this scene is probably the quintessential one in the film because it literally combines the horror of all the mangled, gory bodies and the subject of suicide with a genuinely funny presentation. Mm -hmm. I mean... 
that when she's like, you just pulled the trigger. You know, yeah. <laughs> she's, she's got this big grin on her face. Uh, this movie rides that line between horror and comedy perfectly, like very few have. Plus, you have all the diegetic sounds of the porno film, See You Next Wednesday, in the background, which makes it even, yeah. even wilder. And apparently, when, when, when Landis wrote this, there were a lot of like cartoon theaters downtown. And originally, this scene took place in a cartoon theater that just showed like old cartoons. But by the time they made this movie, they'd been replaced with porno theaters. Oh, dear. <laughs> Says a lot, don't it? Uh, we get some shots of how busy Piccadilly Circus is, then cut back to the theater, and David begins to change. He warns some guy to leave, and the moron just stands there. Yeah. When his claws start growing through his nails, he finally looks startled enough to move. We don't see much of the change here, just the nails and one of the change old heads yeah. again. Uh, the usher goes back to check on the screams and gets attacked. We only see the wolf head puppet again in a quick cut. Then the police arrive, and the bobby shines a light on the werewolf, eating what's left of the poor usher. Ugh. This is our first really clear look at the monster's face. And Baker said when he thought Landis was only going to just show fleeting shots of the face, he thought he'd better sculpt a pretty severe, exaggerated look. Mm -hmm. Landis ended up showing it more than expected, but the extremely demonic face really sells this as a supernatural creature and not just a big dog. Mm -hmm. So, Baker based the basic look of the wolf on his quiche hound Bosco. Uh, this shot in the theater always really shocks me with the day glow red of the blood all over his teeth. I mean, it really shows how this thing is actually eating this poor guy. Yeah. I mean, it's like, good. The Bobby runs out, pulls down the garage door gate, and yells for help, and tells other cops to call for backup and rifles. He's trying to hold it closed, and all these rubberneckers are piling around. Why would you do that? Run like hell. I know, hell. I kept saying, why? <laughs> just why? Go away. Just, just leave. I mean, I, I'm getting as far away there as possible. Uh, while the police are trying to block the door, while you see the wolf pounding against it, you can really hear the sounds well here. Uh, the sound team used a combination of different animals, sometimes ran in reverse to give the creature an, an unearthly sound. They even dropped a lion's roar and a locomotive sound into that famous howl. Yeah. So it's not just a wolf's howl, you know. Villers and McManus show up, and the inspector wants to know what the hell is going on. As if on cue, the werewolf breaks to the door and makes a beeline for Villers. You get a shot of the wolf's teeth going around his neck and then some nasty sound effects and Biller's head goes flying through the air, bouncing on the top of a squad car. You ain't fixing that. No. So did David react to hearing that idiot's voice? I don't know. Because he, you know, maybe he did, you know. I, I don't know. The wolf is loose in Piccadilly Circus and all hell breaks loose. A double-decker bus crashes. Cars run into each other. People are tossed out of their vehicles and then run over by others. John Landis cameos as a man knocked through a plate glass window by a car. All this while everyone runs and screams with the wolf snapping at them as he stalks along the streets. I hope nobody got torn or, you know, I hope if they got bit or scratched, they died. Yeah. Because they're in for a world of hurt, you know, and they're going to be a werewolf. So, <laughs> and then the bloodline won't be severed. Yeah. Baker and his team tried multiple versions of how to make the four-legged wolf look like he was walking. A full puppet wasn't convincing and a man in a full suit looked silly. So Baker remembered the old wheelbarrow race from childhood where you pick up someone's legs and they walk on their hands. A stunt person was dressed in the suit with their legs sticking out of the back with another person holding them at a 45 degree angle. The back legs move a bit in the shots as well, but if they showed any more, it would look like the wolf was pooping out someone he just ate. <laughs> we briefly cut to Hirsch telling Alex he just heard of a mad dog causing a disturbance in Piccadilly 
and she instantly says, David. Yeah, so, she knows. She knows at this point. The police follow the wolf into a dead-end alley. How appropriate. Uh, they try to clear the streets and let the armed backup arrive, and people are still trying to see what's going on. Yeah. I have never understood why people would do that. If you can if you can help, sure, but if the police or authorities clearly want you out of the way, listen to them. Yes. Yes. We see the armed police loading their rifles as the cars race past Alex and Hirsch's taxi. She jumps out, much like David did, and runs off toward the danger, of course. Uh, the armed cops all get in a line, kneel down, but Alex just plows through them, knocking a few of them over. Right. No one chases after her, though. Well, they probably thought, well, you dumb broad, go ahead. <laughs> they do block Hirsch, however. Mm. Well, he's a doctor. We can't let him get killed. Yeah. Uh, she walks up toward him and tells him that they're going to kill him, and she says, please let me help you. He growls, but then she says, I love you, David. And there's a close-up on his eyes, and his brow goes down. His look softens with some vague amount of recognition. But then he roars and moves forward, and the cops open fire, and we see the bullets hit the wolf's fur. After about four shots, Hirsch and some cops run toward Alex. Then we cut to Alex, and she is shaken as if she's looking at something she can't believe. Then we see David's human but dead body. He has two bleeding bullet wounds in his right rib, one around his right collarbone and one in his right thigh. So, would this have killed him? I mean, maybe if it cross went crossway. Well, yeah. I guess. Uh, yeah. And how did the cops miss Alex, though? I've always wondered that. <laughs> there are some really good marksmen, uh, you know, which I'm sure they are, but still. We see Alex beginning to cry, and Hurst just standing there, but doesn't put his arms around her. I mean, comfort this woman, man. I mean. Well, he's also. Prepare yourself. Your friend's dead. Yeah, that's true. You know, not yeah. known for his bedside manner. That's true. The last shot is of David's lifeless body, then a jump cut to the credits and the very upbeat version of Blue Moon by the Marcells, as mm-hmm. we mentioned. And, you know, something that occurred to me, both the werewolf, the previous werewolf, and David both changed like that. Yes. Back to human, but look how long it took him to change into, into the, were- the wolf. Into yeah. the wolf. That's kind of weird. Hmm. You know, I never thought about that. So somehow... You never saw this movie until last year, right? Right. What did you think of it? I mean, I thought it was really good. I mean, I was like, when we watched it, I'm like, why don't we cover that? I mean, that was my suggestion. Yeah. To be honest, I've wanted to cover it for years, but after your reaction to Dr. Fives, which also blends a very quirky sense of humor with horror, I didn't think you'd like this movie. I really didn't. I was really happy that you did. <laughs> There's just something about it, about Fives that I'm like, nope. Does the love story part kind of help bring you through it a little bit? I don't know. I mean, this movie? Yeah, I I know, I know, but I just, I don't, I don't know. This one I just like. This one you like, and that one you don't, yeah. Uh, This film was, I know, it's fun. Nobody come for me. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) She likes this movie, leave her alone. This film was a big hit, and has clearly stood the test of time, and has emerged as a seminal horror picture, especially in the werewolf category. Baker won his first of seven Oscars for this film, Landis, Baker, composer Elmer Bernstein, cinematographer Robert Paintner all collaborated again for Michael Jackson's epic thriller mini-movie music video a few years later because Jackson loved this film and he wanted everyone involved to make that video. And, of course, that's got its own legacy, you know. Uh, Baker would get to create more werewolves, first designing a look that is basically the polar opposite of this for Mike Nichols' Wolf, starring Jack Nicholson. We covered that a few years ago in the makeups are influenced by the more subdued design Jack P. Pierce created for 1935's Werewolf of London. 
Baker would get another crack at a Pierce design when he created the look for the 2010 version of The Wolfman, which also earned him an Oscar despite the studio futzing with his work by adding unneeded CGI in parts. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to do that movie at some time. I have mixed feelings about that movie. I, know. I like parts of it, but there's other parts of it I'm like, yeah, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have. That twist was not necessary. No. Yeah. Landis followed this up with another hit, Trading Places, but his next release film would alter the course of his career. Landis directed a segment in the film adaptation of The Twilight Zone. During filming, two young child extras and veteran actor Vic Morrow were killed in a helicopter accident. Reports vary, but many on set say Landis told the pilot to keep going lower, despite his protest that it wasn't safe to do so due to the explosions going off. Although Landis and members of the crew were acquitted for involuntary manslaughter after a nine-month trial which ran from 1986 through 1987, the court of public opinion seems to have eventually caught up to Landis, and his film career has never been the same. His glib defense of his actions certainly didn't help this. His former friend and supporter and Twilight Zone co-producer Steven Spielberg cut all ties with him. He's continued to work, but his profile is much lower now. Mm Ironically, there's a making-of documentary on the DVD made in 1981 that has Landis talking about all the stunts in the film. He actually says, oh, it's all carefully planned. You plan the stunts. You practice. No movie is worth hurting someone for. Someone at Universal either has a sixth sense of humor or wasn't paying attention when he put that those on the bonus features. Right. Uh, I think his maverick attitude toward filmmaking helped make this movie what it is, but there certainly seemed to be some disregard for safety here as well. Right. So, Landis didn't have much of a desire to make a sequel, but he did write a script for uh, what eventually was released as An American Werewolf in Paris, but it was not his script. Uh, That film was released 26 years later in 1997. The less said about that CGI monstrosity, the better. Mm -hmm. Although, apparently, there is some reference to one of the werewolves in that movie possibly being the daughter of Nurse Alex Price with the indication that David was the father. Oh. Yeah, but it was dropped out of the movie. But her mother was still a nurse, so you can still kind of infer that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Despite all that, on its own merits, this is just a great film. Scary and funny in equal parts, writing that razor's edge perfectly with wonderfully rendered characters. You really do wonder about poor David's family and how Alex ever overcame this. Right. So we're going to take a quick break, and we come back, we'll visit the comic crypt. And action! It's Fade Out. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hemorama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely. And of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. 
and unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. Comic Crypt, and we're going to open a special package from our pal and fellow Fire and Water Network all-star Rob Kelly. I should mention that Rob and our pal Andy Leyland did an audio commentary for An American Werewolf in London over on Film and Water a while back, so be sure to check that out. And thanks for your help with this, Rob. So we're going to talk about Amazing Spider-Man number 124, cover dated September 1973, on sale June 12, 1973, so nowhere around Halloween. No. This is a classic cover by the late, great John Romita, one of the standouts of the early Bronze Age at Marvel, and that's saying something. The man-wolf crashes through J. Jonah Jameson's apartment window, growling as he leaps in, the full moon in the sky behind him. Spider-Man is clinging to the wall, asking, Jameson, that thing, what is it? And Jameson, looking away, his hands trying to block it, says, It's my son! So what do you think of it? It's a dynamic cover. It's a, it gives you a lot of interest. A lot of color, you know, it draws the action in right to the middle. It's a good cover. Yeah, I mean, and, and the man wolf looks like very savage and mm. very furry. I mean, it, you can just feel the fur, the bristly fur on him. It's just, it's really super well done. Of course, you know, I mean, it's it's John Romita, of course it is. So the story is the mark of the man wolf, just like on the cover. Jerry Conway was the scripter, so we got another Jerry Conway story. Right. Uh, Gil Kane was the penciler. John Romita and Tony Mortallero were the inkers. Artie Simek was the letterer. David Hunt was the colorist. And Roy Thomas, and there's Roy Thomas again, mm -hmm. was the editor. Ten days after the deaths of his beloved Gwen Stacy and his mortal enemy, Norman Osborn, a.k.a. the Green Goblin, Spider-Man broods over the Daily Bugle headlines. Publisher J. Jonah Jameson is accusing him of Osborn's murder. In the Bugle offices, city editor Robbie Robertson tries to argue with Jonah about the libelous copy, but they are interrupted by the arrival of Jonah's son, John Jameson. Recently retired from astronautics, John is there to introduce his fiancée, Kristen Sanders, to his father. When the red pendant on his necklace begins to glow, John grows weak and ill, something his father and fiancée take note of. Trying to get his life back to normal, Spider-Man changes back to Peter Parker and attends his first classes at Empire State University following Gwen's tragic death. He feels everyone is watching him and grows frustrated, bolting out of class. Mary Jane Watson follows him, trying to comfort him, but the arrival of his former high school adversary, Flash Thompson, causes Peter to lash out at the two and storm off. Later that evening, John Jameson struggles, but is unable to stop his transformation into the snarling beast, soon to be known as the Man-Wolf. The beast stalks through the city until finding his prey. He leaps through the window of J. Jonah Jameson's apartment, and the loudmouthed newsman quickly realizes his assailant is not wearing a mask. 
At that same time, an enraged Peter Parker sees another of Jonah's accusatory headlines and snaps, vowing to teach his boss a lesson. He changes into Spider-Man, heads to Jonah's pad, and sees the man-wolf leaping through the window. Spider-Man tackles the monster and the two tussle for some time, but ultimately the web spinner's head is conked against the floor and he passes out. Jonah tries to call the police, but the man-wolf stops him. He stares into his eyes, but Jonah notices something familiar around his neck. The beast backs away and Jonah sees in his eyes a plea for help. It leaps into the night and when Spider-Man awakens, he's flummoxed when Jonah forbids him from going after the creature that just attacked him. As he leaves, Spidey comments on how ungrateful Jonah is, but Jonah's thoughts tell us he can't be grateful for being saved from his own son. Spider-Man rests on a rooftop, pondering how the fight with the man-wolf caused all of his pent-up rage to subside. He's feeling pretty good, other than that nagging spider-sense alert of danger. He looks around but sees nothing. With his head turned, he's unaware of the man-wolf leaping toward him, ready to attack. Uh, okay, if you're a long-time listener to the Fire and Water Network, you've heard me talk about a version of this story with Rob Kelly over on the Power Records podcast, because Power Records did an adaptation of this issue and the following, which we'll get to, in one package. So they basically edited the two together. Right. Uh, using this cover for the book and record set that came with some versions. A friend of mine had that Spider-Man and his friends album that had that adaptation, but I didn't have it as a kid. I did, however... It was something you didn't have? What? I know. I you know. had everything. You were a spoiled little thing. Do you have to bring that up every time I mention something I had as a kid? Yes. Okay. Uh, you're just jealous. I did, I however... I jealous because I didn't have... <laughs> near... No. Uh-uh. I'm sorry. I did, however, have Marvel Tales number 101, March 1979, which reprinted this issue. For some reason, that particular comic survived the Great Werewolf Purge after my traumatizing encounter with Abner and Costello meet Frankenstein, which I won't go into again. Right. Uh, we have some continuity with uh, last episode because, like we said, Jerry Conway is scripting again. A very young Conway had shaken the comics community to its core with the deaths of Gwen Stacy in issue number 121 and then her murderer, the Green Goblin, in the following issue. And he'd just been on the book for 10 issues before taking over from co-creator Stan Lee. Yeah. I mean, Roy Thomas did a few fill-ins, but Stan was still basically the, the main writer on the book until Jerry took over. There's a great moody splash page showing a rainy evening with a news vendor unpacking a bundle of papers the art in this issue is just gorgeous. Gil Kane's art, particularly the main Spidey cast, was heavily reworked in the inking stage by John Romita, but Kane's dynamic layouts and anatomy remain. It's really the best of both worlds. I'm assuming Tony Mortallero did mostly backgrounds and other figures. Okay. Because the people look, you know, like they're at least inked by John Romita. Spidey grabs two newspapers with his web shooters, a bugle, and a herald, and I don't think he pays for either of them. No, that's not good. <laughs> no. Of course, Spidey is lamenting the loss of his love, Gwen, and even to some extent, poor old Norman Osborn. He is surprised no one has discovered that Norman was a Green Goblin. He thinks someone is trying to cover up his tracks. He points out the Herald is being fair with the headline, Spider-Man, Killer or Victim? But surprise, the Bugle is just making shit up with Spider-Man murders eminent businessman. I would say that's slander, but thanks to J.K. Simmons, we know in print it's libel. Mm. <laughs> Speaking of old skin Flint, he's browbeating Robbie about how he's going to see Spider-Man pay for murdering an associate of his. He references hiring someone to take Spidey down in the previous issue, and that would be Luke Cage, hero for hire. Since that didn't work out, he's going to 
going into pure smear campaign mode. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's fair. And I actually had to reprint where he fought Luke Cage because that's the first time I ever remember seeing Luke Cage. Oh, okay. So that, and I was really young then, so. John Jameson walks in and he's introduced to Robbie. The two haven't met, but John has appeared sporadically throughout the Amazing Spider-Man series, debuting back in issue number one when Spider-Man saved his space capsule after re-entry, one of the first sins Spidey committed taking the spotlight from J- Jonah's all-American hero son. Oh, so he should have just let him die. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, John gets weak and sweaty and says he's just getting a touch of the flu. Of course, no one notices the pendant on his neck glowing, but if you have the flu, keep your butt at home. Yes. Yes, don't spread that around. No. Or lycanthropy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> John introduces his dad to Christine Saunders, and Jonah immediately chastises her for not taking care of his boy, what a father-in-law to be. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, but if you met him and you're like, do I really want to marry into this family? <laughs> Mary Jane almost did it in Spider-Man 2. I know. Yeah. But she agrees with him here, so apparently they're cool. Who knew? Spidey goes to class as Peter, but he is bothered by folks being oblivious to what happened, but also by those who knew who he feels are watching him. So make up your mind, Peter. Mm-hmm. Isn't he the guy whose girlfriend was killed? Yeah, that's me. Peter, that's Peter Parker. He gets upset, snaps a pen, and runs out of class. Mary Jane runs after him, concerned, but Peter says, What difference is it to you, Mary Jane? You're Harry Osborne's girl, not mine. So if she isn't your girlfriend, she has no value. Why did she ever marry this guy? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I know he's going through a lot, but Peter's yeah, yeah, but still. A, a real jerk in this comic book. And Flash Thompson walks out, concerned about Harry, who is Peter's roommate, and has pulled an even bigger disappearing act, Flash says it's none of his business, and Peter angrily agrees. He lashes out at both both of them, saying, You and all the rest of the clowns seem to think we're freaks just because we want a little quiet in our lives, a little silence. Bug off, both of you. I've had it up to here. Clearly, Peter is now in the anger stage of grief. Yes. So, but yeah. All in 10 days. All in 10 days. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh. He's went through it all. We then cut to John Jameson's place and Conway, Kane, and Ramita are trying to hide who this man wolf is for some reason. He's Mm -hmm. in shadow. The cover gave it away, guys. I know. (laughs) But John, you know, he's mostly in shadow, but you do see his sandy gray hair, which it's like, it's clearly him. So why are we even bothering making this a, you know, a mystery? He says, it's happening again. My special outfit doesn't stop it like it's supposed to. And his outfit looks like, and is colored like, the outfit he wore when he was affected by space pores from Jupiter in Amazing Spider-Man number 42 and grew and gained super strength and fought Spidey as Colonel Jupiter. They never say it's the same suit, but it sure looks like it. And John Romita drew those issues. Okay. That was back when he was just straight up drawing Amazing Spider-Man, not too long after he took over from Steve Ditko. So what do you think of the man-wolf design? The outfit or the creature itself? Both. The outfit looks like it's a reject from a Star Trek episode. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. What about the creature? I mean, it, it's one of those cases. I mean, it, it's a man-wolf. It gets it, it gets it across. I mean, you know. It's interesting because, one, he's a gray wolf, uh-huh. which actually makes more sense than brown. Yeah. Uh, and he has a very canine face. It almost looks like a wolf head on a human body. Uh, I'm sure there were other more lupine designs before this, but I can't think of any. For me, you know, people went to the, you know, Lon Chaney Wolfman model. Right. Mostly. 
Uh, Werewolf by Night essentially looked like the Wolfman, or more appropriately, the Aurora Wolfman model kit. Mm-hmm. You know, no shirt, pair of jeans, you know. Yeah. And, and in fact, me and Andrew, when we painted it, we painted it like, we gave him green pants so he looked like both the Wolfman and Werewolf by Night. Right. So it worked that way. That, you know, that human-wolf hybrid look, and American Werewolf in London cemented the more lupine look for werewolves. And the Howling came out around, you know, obviously the same time, and they were also very lupine in the face, even though they were bipedal. But this is like, if you guys know of, of a movie or, you know, I'm sure there were like in comic books, there were there's probably references of more lupine-looking werewolves, but as far as like in popular culture beyond comic stories, I everybody was basically aping the Wolfman to some degree. Or, you know, maybe going back a little bit to Werewolf of London or something. There's some nice moody panels of him stalking across the city before he breaks in on Jonah. He looks really ferocious and menacing. I see quite a bit of Kane coming through in his figure work here. So I think, you know, I feel like John Romita kind of left Kane alone in some of those in, in the man-wolf part. He just did a lot of, lot of feathering for the fur and stuff. He leaps for Jonah on the bottom of the page. Then we go to another page and get a couple of captions that read, Marvel Time Paradox, in which we travel back several minutes and across several blocks to a newspaper vendor on a rain-swept avenue where, and I like the fun, cheeky way they do this instead of simply a few minutes earlier. You yeah. Know? It's, you know, it, it's, it's <laughs> you know, they, they make it like... It's, it's doing the com- comics the Marvel way. It's exactly, yeah. <laughs> now Peter is smashing through a newspaper vending machine, ripping out multiple copies and losing his crap railing against Jameson and oddly Gwen. Why won't you let it lie, Jameson? Why won't you leave me alone? Everywhere I turn, I see you, and I see Gwen, and you're both accusing me. Um, This is something Andy Leyland has pointed out in his excellent examinations of different eras of Spider-Man comics on the Palace of Glittering Delights. But Peter can be a bit self-absorbed. I mean, you can understand it here, but it really isn't out of character either. He's lashed out over much less than this. But again, he is a college-age person at this point. They are not known, and that he's, you know, a teenage boy. You know, they're not known for being even keel. That's true. I mean, I'm serious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're maybe expecting a little too much maturity out of him. Uh-huh. It, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And as far as Gwen accusing him, it may have something to do with that ominous snap sound effect when Spidey's web line reached her falling body. Uh-huh. Just saying, you know. Uh, I think Peter was going to really go rough JJJ up. Uh-huh. I mean, it seemed like he was. It's a good thing the man wolf was there, or he may have done something he'd regret later. Yeah. Yeah. So while he's ranting, we get to see him checking his web shooters. I was always a sucker for things like this because it gave me a good, you know, it's like, oh, if I take some aluminum foil and a balloon, I can make my own web shooter. <laughs> oh, and I did multiple times, you know. Spidey sees Man-Wolf leap through the window. We get another caption. End of Marvel Time Paradox. We've come full circle. Back to the scene we left a page and a half ago. So thanks for clearing that up, Jerry. Yeah. Appreciate that, yeah. Uh, Kane does a great job with the fight scenes. It's very kinetic and exciting, but it's still easy to read. He's not trying to break the form too much. Just tell a dynamic story. Spidey mentions that he just ran into a werewolf in San Francisco, and that would be none other than Jack Russell, the werewolf by night, in Marvel Team-Up number 12, also plotted by Conway, and on sale just about two weeks earlier. I wonder why they had him encounter two separate werewolves back-to-back. I don't 
don't know. And especially, it's not that time of year, you know. Yeah. It's not September, October when this came out. It but was in the now this, this is the period where Marvel was deep into the monsters. I mean, you oh, had well, Tomb of Dracula, okay, you had okay. Werewolf, you had Man Thing, you know, you had... He had all he had giant sized man thing. You know, he had all these things going on. Oh my. <laughs> he had all these books. You know, this was the horror era of, at Marvel. Uh, and of course DC had all the mystery titles, you know, House of Mystery and House of Secrets and all that stuff. We actually covered that Spider Man Werewolf by Night team up like way, way back in the early days of House of Franklin's. I think Andrew was even on that episode okay. with us. That tells you how long ago it was. Because, uh, you know, he's too cool now to be on a podcast with his parents. Uh, Spidey quips as they fight, of course, and ponders why he's suddenly in such a great mood. He does say he's been spoiling for a good fight. Man-Wolf manages to slash his costume, and Spidey falls back and conks his head. This is when Jonah sees the ruby on Man-Wolf's neck. Conway never had Jonah comment on this, but the readers certainly notice it, so we would too. Right. Uh, Spidey comes to and wonders why Jonah isn't verbally sparring with him. He threatens him if he goes after the Man-Wolf. He'll tell the police it was Spider-Man who attacked him. Spidey leaves, and we get that great close-up panel of Jonah with the thought balloons telling us what the cover already spoiled, that this is his son, uh-huh. and that he knows it. So, the man-wolf is still stalking about, now apparently after Spidey. He's thinking to himself, while sitting on the roof, noting how the fight worked out all the anger. Almost. I can dig the world. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very 70s, you know. But His spider sense goes off, but he doesn't see anything. So, how good is that power? Because... In the last large panel, old Furball is leaping right at him with his head turned. Yeah. I mean, he's literally like a foot away from him, mm-hmm. if that. So what did you think about this part? I mean, it was a good setup, and, you know, you can understand, especially where we see Jay Jonah and how he interacts with his son and everything else. I mean, what a dad would do for his kid. So. Even even J.J. Yeah. Jay, that's usually, you know, portrayed as a real... He actually does love his son, yeah. and yeah, he cares about his son, so yeah. Uh, this is a great Bronze Age Marvel comic. It's got lots of melodrama, character moments, and action. Conway is really one of the best mainstream comic writers ever, and he's paired with two of the greatest artists ever to work in the medium. Add in an eerie, moody atmosphere and a sympathetic monster, and you have a real gem. So, hey, let's go to part two. Okay. Amazing Spider-Man number 125 was cover dated October 1973. It was just cover dated, though. Didn't come out in October. It was on sale July 10th, 1973. I just didn't even think about that, but this is the 50th anniversary of this comic. Holy cow. Man, I feel old. On the cover, penciled (laughs) again by Jazzy John Romita and inked this time by Mike Esposito. You weren't born yet. I wasn't born yet, I know. And inked by Mike Esposito, Man-Wolf grabs Kristen Saunders from her convertible as he backhands Spider-Man. Kristen says, Spider-Man, stay back. You can't save me. And Spider responds, no, no, I won't let you die. Not like Gwen. Not like Gwen. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I mean, there's like 14 ends. You know, it's just like, so what did you think of the cover? I don't like this cover as much as the other cover. It seems busier. It's hard to have that central shot that draws you in. It's, it's more across the whole thing. I, I like the first cover better. Yeah, and it, it kind of looks like it's in the daylight, too, now mm-hmm. that I look at it. It's it's too bright, you know. It's I mean, it's still beautifully oh, drawn. Oh, it is. It is, but I'm saying... It's not know. as iconic and just, you know, it doesn't... It, yeah, it's, it's, a little, it's a little bit of a letdown for the last cover, but, I mean, that one would be really hard to top, you know. So, uh, I love the overly melodramatic, not-like-Gwen bit. The cover blurb says the man-wolf strikes again, but inside the title is actually... Wolf Hunt. Mm. Uh, Jerry Conway was the writer. This time, Ross Andrew was the artist. 
John Romita and Tony Mortallero were the inkers. Artie Simek was again the letterer, Dave Hunt the colorist, and Roy Thomas was again the editor. Spider-Man heeds his spider sense and gets to his feet before the man-wolf makes contact. The two tussle, but Spidey's heart isn't into the fight, and once again dwelling on the death of Gwen Stacy. He does note two things, the ruby pendant around the beast's neck and the setting moon. The man-wolf notices it too and runs off before he begins to transform. Spidey attempts to follow, but the wound he suffered earlier at the monster's hand takes effect, and he trips over some garbage cans as his quarry escapes. In his apartment, Peter Parker rests, while his roommate Harry Osborne resurfaces in a local coffee shop and gives his girlfriend Mary Jane Watson a treatment similar to what Peter gave her the day before. Meanwhile, J. She's Jonah- gonna get complex. She is. Meanwhile, J. Jonah Jameson visits his son's apartment and has his fears confirmed when he finds his son asleep in the man wolf's torn uniform. John explains that on a secret mission to the moon, he discovered the ruby he now wears as a pendant. He had a friend at the quarantine center give it to him to wear as a souvenir. On the first full moon following this, he found himself changing into an uncontrollable beast. In the months that followed, he transformed every full moon. He had hoped his special radiation suit would cut out the lunar rays, but it proved useless. Jonas suggests he remove the pendant, but John informs him it has grafted itself to his skin. After he awakens in the afternoon, Spider-Man follows a hunch and visits Robbie Robertson at the Daily Bugle office. Jonah has police waiting for him. They launch tear gas, but Spidey escapes. A wiped-out Peter Parker visits Mary Jane's pad, but she decides to follow her own advice and show him and his drama to the door. That night, Kristen Saunders checks on her fiancé when he doesn't show up for a date. She sees John in his upstairs window, but he won't answer. Inside, John begs his father to leave before the beast overcomes him. Jonah doesn't listen, and when the man-wolf emerges, he strikes his father and escapes. He then notices Christine's car and moves on in. A few moments earlier, again, we're doing that again, Spider-Man recognized the type of material the man-wolf was wearing was similar to the material used in astronaut suits, pointing to John Jameson. Outside of John's apartment, he sees the man-wolf attacking Christine and swings in. Spidey figures the ruby has something to do with the transformation, but covering it with his webbing has no effect. He then attacks the beast from behind and rips the pendant off. The beast howls in pain, but begins to revert to the human form of John Jameson, much to the shock of Christine. Jonah runs out to comfort his son, and Spidey suggests he call the doctor as he throws the pendant into the Hudson River. Jonah is more concerned about the publicity this will cause, but Spider-Man points out that he's lucky John wasn't killed, or that he hasn't killed anyone else. Jonah tries to speak to Spider-Man, but the dejected hero walks off. So we start right off in the middle of the action, and it's well executed. Ross Andrew has a dynamic flair, like Gil Kane, with even more dizzying perspectives. This is his first regular issue of Amazing Spider-Man, and he'll define the rest of the decade on this title, drawing the, drawing it for like over 60 issues. Oh, wow. Okay. Plus, he was the artist on the Spider-Man, Superman versus Spider-Man Treasury, which was also written by Jerry Conway. Guess they had both worked on both characters, so they were the perfect team to do that. But what's with Spider-Man being melancholy again all of a sudden? Right. I mean, last issue he felt he could go on living, but now he's all, nothing matters. Now that Gwendy's dead, not even it seems my own survival. So, you know, he's, ooh, mood swings. Yeah. Uh, Spidey says, wait a minute. That pendant. I've seen it before. But I'm blasted if I can remember where. We can't remember either, Spidey, because as far as we know, you've never seen it. Uh Peter never encountered John wearing it in the previous issue. There was no promotional photos of him in it that I know of either. 
This is a plot thread that kind of dies here, and I wonder if Conway wasn't going to work in a flashback or something to explain it and just forgot. Mm. You know, it, it's very, you know, it's almost like, you know, I, I don't know if, if like, Ross Andrew, like, drew something and Jerry Conway had to, like, dialogue it that way if they were working, you know, Marvel style or, I don't know, but... I like that Spidey figures with the full moon setting, the man-wolf will revert to human, will be easier to handle. I mean, that's good thinking. Uh, but that wound of his is suddenly a problem, despite apparently not bleeding at all before. Although he does mention, lucky I haven't passed out from blood loss. So I think the comics code is rearing its head here. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, in the rules of the film we just discussed, Peter would be cursed as a werewolf. Oh, yeah. Because he got scratched by one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> We get a brief scene with Mary Jane, Flash, and some unnamed African-American character when Harry walks into the coffee shop. I don't know if it was Hobby Brown or it's Robbie's son or it's just another classmate. I don't, I don't know who it is. They don't, they don't say who he is. Uh, MJ seems down about Peter and Harry, and Flash wants her to go back to her old vapid self. Uh, this storyline was the first time they actually tried to make MJ seem more than just a party girl. Oh, okay. Because okay. at the time, you know, MJ was the fun party girl and Gwen was the, you know, she was the, you know, uh, introspective, uh, thoughtful type, you know. And, you know, MJ was all, let's dance, tiger, you know, and yeah. that, that type, you know, that was her character. Of course, later they revealed that she wasn't really that way. It was just an act. And then, of course, later they revealed she knew Peter was Spider-Man all along. So, like, before she met Peter, she knew he was Spider-Man because she saw him come back, swing back into his house. Oh. uh, And I think, like, during Amazing Fantasy number 15. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And they didn't meet till like, Amazing Spider-Man 40 or something like that. So, yeah, they kept teasing, you know, what she looked like. And luckily, she didn't appear till John Romita took over because, no offense, Steve Ditko, who I love, but... He can't draw women like John Romita did. <laughs> so, <laughs> Face it, Tiger. You hit the jackpot. That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Harry sounds pretty threatening when he tells her, stuff it, sweetheart. Just get on my sight before I do something we both regret. I know the guy just lost his dad, but there's no excuse for threatening violence for someone who's concerned about you. You know? I'm sorry, but I'd be like, okay, buddy, bye. Yeah. Well, you know, Harry's obviously is a bag of, of trouble, you know, anyway. Oh, I know, but I'm just saying, I mean, anybody would talk to me like that, I'd be like, oh, okay. You're done, sucker, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, Jonah visits John's apartment and recognizes the man wolf suit, even though he didn't recognize it looked like John's old Colonel Jupiter outfit. Mm-hmm. Uh, John tells the story of how he got the ruby, and Andrew and colorist Dave Hunt gives the art an old EC horror vibe. With the panel layouts and the choice of day glow colors, it's very effective and very moody. I mostly know Hunt as an inker at DC in the late 70s and early 80s, mostly over Kurt Swan on Superman. So uh, this is I mean, this is nice work. Of course, we're in flashbacks, so the panel corners are rounded. Mm-hmm. It's either that or it's a Super Friends comic because mm-hmm. <laughs> of the TV screen thing. Uh, John makes sure to let us know that at least his first potential victim, a truck driver, managed to escape. Again, the comics code. Uh, we do see the man wolf leaping at a woman and then a silhouette of a man. I can't imagine all these people managed to get out alive. No. So, I don't know if there's a bunch of dead people following him around telling him to kill himself. I don't know. You know, <laughs> who knows? Jonah tells him to take off the pendant, and I love his answer. Dad, try not to treat me with the contempt you save for your employees. I have tried to remove the stone, but it's too late. It's grafted to my skin. Permanently. 
Yeah. Uh, that's a great dig that even John knows his dad is an ass to other people and a great setup for how Spidey is going to resolve this. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I guess Spidey was dropping in on Robbie to see if he knew who may have attacked Jonah. I know. They didn't really explain that. No. So, mm-hmm. but Jonah has the cops waiting and they are ready with tear gas, which I assume they just unleashed in a busy office building. I know. And how are Jonah and Robbie spared this? The cops have on gas masks. But they don't. They don't. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Robbie gives Jonah guff for accusing Spidey of Osborne's murder again. He says, I hate him because he's a glory hound. And because while he's stealing headlines, good men are suffering without a word, without anyone caring, whether they live or die. Uh, Jameson's motivations have always been a bit shaky. So it's moments like this that kind of crystallize them somewhat, even if this is a pretty specific case. Yeah. You know, they, they, you know they've tried over the years to kind of like, well, why does Jonah hate Spider-Man so much? And like give different reasons and things. But, you know, right here you can kind of understand. So I guess MJ has tried to be a concerned friend, but since both Peter and Harry are being asses, she's going to just go back to being an uninvolved airhead. Well, I wouldn't <laughs> say uninvolved airhead, more like, screw it, I'm not fooling with them people. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just saying that's what her character normally okay. has been up to this point. So, Why does Christine have on a dress very similar to the man-wolf outfit? It's the same colors, and the design is pretty close, too. Well, you know, don't you want to match when we go out? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Twinsies. That's right. Uh, Jonah has created supervillains and hired inventors like Smythe to make robots to take out Spidey. Couldn't he have paid someone to cage John? Yeah. You know, I mean, what's the, you know, uh, there's got to be some, uh, the trapster, you know, in Marvel. They, they hire the trapster to put a, him in a cage, you know, or something like that. Uh, John's transformation is pretty quiet. And up until the last panel, Jonah, Jonah doesn't seem too freaked out by this. No. I mean, you know, I mean, I slowly watched Andrew turn into a werewolf via puberty, but, you know, if I saw him do it all in like two <laughs> seconds, you know, I'd, I'd be freaked out, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, when the man-wolf gets out, he attacks the strung-out-looking guy with a switchblade in the alley. The text reads, he lands in the midst of a tableau, unfortunately not unfamiliar to the streets of New York. So what was this guy doing? Was he going to cut someone off camera? Did they originally have him shooting up and had to change it again? Comics. Code? I just assumed it was something illegal. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't know what. Yeah, maybe he had the knife out because he was going to cut. You know, like he was going to shoot up or so, like cut, I don't know. put something around his arm and then cut. I don't know, but yeah, something. Uh, but Man Wolf notices Christine and ignores this guy, so he doesn't die either. Uh, don't dress like the monster of the week uh-huh. if you don't want to get noticed. Yeah, you know, he's just pissed because she's wearing his outfit. I know. Oh, what? honey, no. You know, you cannot be out in the same outfit as me. Mm-mm. You know, that's... <laughs> so we get another time jump backwards, and Spidey is swinging and suddenly works out that the fabric the man-wolf was wearing was like the insulated suits used by astronauts. And what previous werewolf victim that knows that he knows has an astronaut son? Hmm. So now the ruby recognition thing is just dropped. Yep. Because he shouldn't recognize it. <laughs> no. He tries to cover the pendant with his webbing when they start fighting, but that doesn't work. So after a bit of struggle, he just grabs it from behind and rips it off. Yes. With a huge patch of fur. Yes. And skin, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. And the oh sound he makes is much more effective and honestly haunting 
in the Power Records audio adaptation. Oh, okay. Yeah, it is like, you know, it's it's like the whole man thing story with the clown committing suicide and that that's another one of those how do they get away with that in a comic book, you know, in a in a children's record thing? Here we go again, Wolfie. This time I have a theory to try out. It's my guess that pendant is what's making you a werewolf. And so it has to come off. Even if I have to tear it off. Spider-Man, what's happening to him? He's he's changing. Dear Lord, I didn't realize the pendant had grafted itself onto his skin. John changes back and no one else races out to see what all the commotion is. In the middle of a busy New York neighborhood, Spidey tosses the ruby into the Hudson in a move that I'm sure he won't regret later. No, of course not. Yeah, yeah. Spider-Man doesn't have a good track record with things that come from the moon or alien planets and no, that so graft much. to your skin. Yeah, and th- yeah it's mm-hmm. just bad track record. Uh, Jameson is concerned about the publicity because, of course he is. As someone who exploits his media power, he knows how fickle the public can be. Yeah. So... Christine asks if John will be okay. Spidey says, answer her, Jameson. Tell her everything's really swell. Maybe someday you'll even begin to believe it yourself. Jonah tries to say something to Spidey, but he he cuts him off and says, save it for the papers, Jonah. Save it for tomorrow. Do you think he was actually going to thank him? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not sure what he was going to say either, but he didn't seem like he was going to like start ranting at him yeah. or anything. So it, it, it had to be something a little softer than usual. So what did you think about this chapter? It was a good wrap up, you know, tied up your loose ends and stuff. I, you know, you know, you know, if this was actually real, where he ripped that pendant off, when he came back to being human, there'd be a huge, like, bloody thing, you know, where Chunk it ripped out off of him. Yeah, it would be, yeah. It's the weaker chapter, I think, but it is a fun wrap up, yeah. I agree. Uh, the bit about Spidey recognizing the ruby when he shouldn't, and then it being dropped is the only real letdown. Uh, the characters vacillating between being overwrought with grief, then not, then again, seems a bit odd. But emotions do run that way. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, of course, the man-wolf would return. He'd eventually get his own series and the horror anthology, Creatures on the Loose. There it would be revealed that the ruby comes from another dimension. When John eventually goes to that dimension, he gets the full power of Star God. Okay. Along with his human intelligence, he becomes a space-faring hero that's oh. still a werewolf. Oh. Yeah. He's been many things since then, Man-Wolf off and on, Star-God again, Captain America's personal pilot, and even She-Hulk's husband. Pardon? Yeah, him and She-Hulk were married for a while. I I didn't even know that. As an in-control Man-Wolf, he was recently an agent of Wakanda. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay, that just makes my head hurt. Uh, The Marvel Universe, uh, now this is is the problem. The Marvel Universe has never truly been rebooted. Unlike the DC universe, uh-huh. and it's really starting to show the strain, the strain of all that. Yes. It really is. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's it's really it's it's really it's really strange. They they resisted turning. They they resolved the Manuel story. I think in the early '80s, maybe Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man Annual, and they resist they resisted bringing him back as Manuel for a long time. But then, you know, it became too much. And they, you know, that some, yeah. you know, creators that read this as kids had the power record probably like, oh, I want him to be Man Wolf. Yeah. And he was involved in the story where Cap became Cap Wolf and all that. Oh. I think okay. that might be one of the first times he turned back. So, yeah, it's kind of funny. So, that'll wrap it up for this episode. A huge shout out, as always, to our friend Terry O'Malley, a.k.a. Ward Hill Terry, or Ward Hills Have Eyes Terry, for the House of Frankenstein theme. Follow Terry's band, Stop Calling Me Frank on their Facebook page. Check the show notes for more info.
Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For information on how you can support the Fire & Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Extra special thanks to Jorge Luis Castillo, Matt Ryan, Neil Whitney, Jeff Owens of the Classic Horrors Club Podcast, David Capoon, and Rocket Dan Johnson, who specifically support our JLU cast, but we'll be thanking them here for the duration of House of Frankenstein this season. We're selling Moonrock pendants on Etsy. Could you guys help us put them together? Just don't put them on. Oh, yeah, that they, would be, you know. They tend to get kind of sticky around your neck. It's just Yeah, they kind of adhere to you a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's kind of like, it's oddly enough, it's, uh, you know, in the Spider-Man 90s animated series, they had John Jameson bring the uh, Venom symbiote back with him on his space shuttle. Oh, that's right. Yeah, which I thought they should have done that in Spider-Man 3, because yeah. they had established John right, in Spider-Man yeah. 2, and they didn't end up doing it. Just like, literally, it was a rock that fell out of space. Like, oh. yeah, you could so tell Sam Raimi did not give a crap about putting Venom in that movie, and he had to. Yeah. It was such an afterthought. But anyway, next time, it's our final trip to the House of Frankenstein for 2023, believe it or not. And we're wrapping things up with the film that launched the Universal Horror Cycle proper. Join us for our discussion on 1931's Dracula, starring the iconic Bela Lugosi. See you then. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. He is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright for respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue us while we in daddy. Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at spireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. What shall I do? Suicide. You must take your own life. That's easy for you to say you're you're already dead. No, David. Harry and I and everyone you murder are not dead. The undead. Why are you doing this to me? Because this must be stopped. How shall I do it? Sleeping pills. Not sure enough. I could hang myself. No. No, if you did it wrong, it could be painful. You'd choke to death. So what? Let him choke. Do you mind? The man's a friend of mine. Well, he ain't no friend to me. Gentlemen, please. The gun! I know where you can get a gun. Don't I need a silver bullet or something? Oh, be serious, would you? Madness. Oh, a gun would be good. Yes, you just put the gun to your forehead and pull the trigger. But if you put it in your mouth, you'd be sure not to miss. Thank you. You're all so thoughtful.